Yes, my name is Robert McMillan, and you're all very welcome to the latest edition of Erchul and Hoyle, and Druhid's traditional music podcast in which we go behind the music and talk to trad A-listers about the people they are and the music they play. And for anyone who doesn't know, Andrehead is an arts centre based in Belfast which promotes the Irish language and traditional music throughout the city. Well, this week I'm delighted to say that today's guest is the lovely Una Monaghan who herself says she is an Irish harper, composer, researcher and sound engineer. Una also works, as many of you will know, with experimental and improvised music with live electronics, although her background is in Irish traditional music. You're very welcome to Urkhul and Choil, Una. Thank you, Robert. Okay, well, like myself, you were born and grew up in West Belfast. Was there a lot of music in the house when you were a child? There was, yeah. I mean, most of it live music. Like, we didn't really have many things really anything for, at the start to play recorded music on. Um, but we, we, there were whistles about the place and small violins, and we were also storing a piano for someone at the time. So we all kind of learnt, you know, the first few notes on piano. Um, Mammy was able to teach us those, and I remember starting with Thompson's piano series um, really early on. So, yeah, everyone was always making a racket. Like, there was enough kids around the place, and um, we all had access to whistles and things so yeah there was always noise anyway yeah and noise because there was no television they didn't have a television in the house uh, your parents were more interested that you read rather than uh watch television well yeah i mean there was that and also televisions are pretty expensive so mm-hmm. it, i mean it it was great to to be all i guess playing together and reading and, and doing all of those things but, but also partly because just I guess the expense of a television at the time. Okay um, well the harp then when did you get your first harp and what was it you liked about it? I think I got my first harp in 1992 there was a, a festival run which was a bicentenary for the Belfast Harp Festival and that was really great it was a week of harp lessons um, and you were able to hire a harp at that so I mean there weren't too many harps about and we didn't really have access to one whenever I had started to ask about the harp um, so that when that festival came up I think it was a real um, it was a real benefit uh, that it was happening in Belfast and, and I guess a coincidence as well because Belfast had that history of harp playing and I think maybe if I'd lived somewhere else I wouldn't have had access to the same festival to start um, what I liked about it, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I've always liked the look of it for a start. It's a really interesting piece of equipment. Um, there's something brilliant about the fact that the strings are right there in front of you. You know, there's nothing mystical about it from the point of view where the sound comes from. You touch it and it sounds and, you know, it's, it's really hard to make a harp sound bad as well. Like as soon as you pluck a string, it's got that harp sound, which you can't really say the same thing for a fiddle or a whistle or a flute, you know, especially flute, it takes a while for you to get to develop tone. And I always admire players of those instruments, you know, because I feel like they had to overcome a sort of a hump at the start, you know, to get themselves past that, to have patience with the instrument um, to the point where they were really enjoying the sound that came out of it. Um, Because I I did, I mean, I, I remember trying to play the flute and I don't know whether I just didn't have the patience, but 
I really was aware that you had to put in a lot of effort, like you'd be lightheaded and you had to have exactly the right sort of shape of your mouth and to get something out. You knew what you were aiming for, but it wasn't going to come out right away. And the harp has always been something that you could get relatively good comeback from your effort from day one. So I really, I really do love it as an instrument, as an object to play. And and the same with the fiddle, you know, you can see the strings, but you, the notes themselves are kind of hidden for a wee while. Okay. Uh, you first went to learn music, was it with uh, the legendary uh, McGeek family, and then later with uh, Patrick Davey. Um, was that to, to, to learn the harp? I mean, did you, was there a teacher uh, at the McPeaks and uh, how did Patrick influence your future career? I don't know. I don't know where that claims come from. I'm not sure I can make claim to a McPeak education because <laughs> I didn't I didn't really play whistle or flute or, or I sort of, I, I was never really at McPeak classes. I knew of them. My two older sisters started there, so that's maybe where the rumour came from. Um, Emer and Aoife both played. Eva played pipes and Emer plays fiddle. And so they would have been down at McPeaks from early on. I knew Patrick for years. He was a friend of our family for a long time and taught everyone in the family who played whistle flute pipes. So I was always in contact with him. He also played um, flute and pipes at the Belfast Harp Orchestra concerts and tours. And I would have played with him um, when I was a teenager. So. Uh, he was someone I always admired, a brilliant musician, brilliant composer. Um, and so, yeah, I know Patrick really well, but I can't really claim to have learnt from my peaks or, or Patrick in terms of one-to-one lessons, but definitely learnt about music from them and about what it means to be a performer. Um, real uh, huge people in the Belfast music scene. Yeah, uh, you were good at most things uh, at school, and I know you're very appreciative uh, of your first primary school, Monsko Football Forest. Uh, is the language still important to you? Yeah, hugely. Um, yeah, I I just feel really lucky. I was speaking to people last week, actually, I was working on a project, and they, you know, whenever you go to work down south, there's still this kind of surprise sometimes that you have a Belfast accent and you've decent eyes. <laughs> and... Uh, but but also there's always a kind of a curiosity. It's kind of like where did you, how have you ended up with this language? And and so every time that happens, it is a source of great pride and also knowledge that you know of of how lucky we are that we had such brilliant, dedicated people and resources at that time. So yeah, I absolutely loved my school and I loved the gift of the language and it's something that I really like to keep involved in all, in all of my artwork. Like it does. It is something that comes through in all of my music, and it's also a place where I find work, you know, to turn Gaelic Bjorg and Sir in Radio August, being Dini on a Mimi Gobberla, Trajan Gaelic. So I do work in Irish with, with people, and it's, it's just, I just feel really lucky that that's what happened early on in my life, and it was always a part of our family and friends. Yeah, and then um, as I was saying, you you were you were good at everything at uh, school, and then you went to uh, Saint Dominic's. So whether it was humanities, sports, arts, science, you could have chosen any career path to go down. No, I, I was never going to be able to choose sports. That was that was not happening. I've only started to make myself run now over the last ten years, but that's more of a health thing. I can't claim to have been sporty. Like I was tall, but 
I don't know. I think I sort of stopped Kamogi fairly early on, partly because it was a chicken anyway. You had to be pretty rough to survive in a Kamogi team in the falls. But uh, also because you just kept getting your hands mangled. And I think on a Saturday morning, it was either music or sport. And I would have loved to have kept on hurling longer than I did. Um, there was always hurling and Kamogi in our family. My granddad was an Adam hurler and three of my aunties and mommy. Um, and so, yeah, it's something I would have loved to have done more of, but I didn't really fancy the hands being mangled all the time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, apart from the sport, uh, uh, you had humanities and arts and sciences, uh, but why did you choose to go to Cambridge to do physics and astrophysics? Um, I mean, I was always interested in physics, and I'm really glad I did that. It's it's a real good grind in, in terms of sound, and that's one of the things I really am interested in. But I think Mummy always tells me, you know, that at the time I, I was really torn between whether to do music or physics at university. And in terms of Cambridge, I th- Mummy remembers me just saying that I was going to, you know, see if I was able to get there. So I think <laughs> I kind of had this idea that I might apply and then I would know that I could have even if I picked music, but then once once you get that opportunity, it's quite hard to to then turn it down. So I did I did do physics at university, and I'm really glad I did. Um, it's something I still use, you know, the, those analytical skills and and just the fact that I'm really interested in physics. I got to study astrophysics at um, one of the best places in the world, and while it was tough. Uh, really fascinating. I should remember a lot more of it, to be honest, when every time there's a stargazing event on, <laughs> I'm always thinking, I, I really should remember more of this. But yeah, uh, it is a, it's a source of great interest to me. I, I suppose it also gave you a chance, you know, while you were studying, if you wanted a break, you could always uh, return to the harp. And of course, Cambridge is famous for its uh, folks festival. Were there many opportunities for you to play the harp there, or maybe the concertina, because you play the concertina as well? Yeah, there were. I remember early on, I think it might have been my first or second week in the place, cycling um, from central Cambridge out to Mill Road. So that that sort of canter was where the sessions would happen. And it just happened on that first night that I went looking for the session. It snowed and I cycled. I think it must have been a 20-minute cycle with the concertina in the bike basket up a hill and eventually found this pub and sort of staggered in through the door like a Yeti. Uh, you know, it was covered in snow like... And they sort of looked at me and it was just such a bad night that no one really else had come out. There was only one other musician there. So the first experience of sessions in Cambridge was the hardier musicians that had come out and and hardly any punters. But it made for a lovely night. Um, So, yeah, there was lots of music in Cambridge. And I mean, I was also interested in the non-traditional music that was happening, too. There's a great history of choral music in Cambridge. And I've always found that to be such a common experience to go into any of those really old churches it's it's got brilliant choral music and just sit at the back and listen to the the brilliant music so it it was a place that that always it gave us such an opportunity to hear music at such a high level um what kind of music were you playing at this time i mean was it strictly trad or were you experimenting and composing uh, at that time too no, at that time, I hadn't actually properly come into contact with music technology in the way that I would go on to. So I was writing music, but it was all 
you know, traditional music, but just written by me. So it would have been jigs, reels, hornpipes, slowers, mostly harp music. Um, so I did build up a collection of my own compositions at that time, but nothing that I would now describe as more experimental. Um, so yeah, mostly harp. I was playing, but I found the course in Cambridge to be so random that for, I'd say for those three years, I played relatively little. I had the harp there and I, I was involved in teaching over there and in playing in some of the sessions, but comparatively, I was I was really concentrating on the, the degree work, which took up a lot of time. Yeah. Uh, you came back to Belfast, of course, and started going to gigs here, but typical Una, uh, you were always going to go down the road less travel. You were more interested in the sound desk than the actual uh, music, perhaps, um, and that led you to doing a master's degree at the Sonic Arts Research Centre at Queen's University in Belfast here. Uh, what did that course uh, entail? You were studying, I think, the boundaries of various traditional music performance? Yeah, I mean, I I did come straight home with the intention of doing that course. You know, the, the Sonic Arts Research Centre had opened one year before. This was in 2005. And I just couldn't believe my luck that I'd planned to come home. Really, I'd been three years away. I thought I would come home for a year and reconnect with my school friends and, you know, do this master's. And it just happened to be at a brilliant um, experimental music and sound centre. So I, I did. I, I went straight there and got involved in, in experimental music. Still wasn't really mixing it with the traditional music at that point. It was just really learning a lot about free improvisation, a lot about... Um, tape music and about recording and about music technology and engineering. Um, so that course had electroacoustic composition, it had programming for music, um, it had sound synthesis and also some physics. Um, so I, my dissertation that year was on localization of sound because humans are quite good at telling where sound is coming from if it's above or around them. but. I guess because we're never normally in danger from sound that comes from below. <laughs> uh, we're not that good at telling where sound is coming from if it's coming up to us. And the Sonic Arts Research Centre has a suspended floor in its sonic lab, so you can position sounds underneath you, send it up through this acoustically transparent floor. And I did some measurements to find out if we're sitting on that floor, how good are we at telling where the sound is coming from if it's coming at us from below? And the answer was not, not really very good at all. So we're much better at telling where a sound is if it's above or around. Um, so that was the master's year, and I find it fascinating. Yeah. Uh, what, what do you think uh, electronics add to a piece of music? I mean, do they add uh, emotional power to a piece? Do they add color and drama? What, uh, what do electronics add to a piece of music? See, there's such a broad range of electronics. I mean, you can, I sort of consider everything that's coming out of the computer at that time to be the electronics part of my performance. But that can be synthesized sound tones. It can be uh, something that's derived from recordings of the harp. It can be pre-recorded samples, field recordings of people's voices. It can be you know, a real combination. Some of them you, you can't tell the difference from the electronics from what I'm playing because it's just harp sources coming from the computer rather than me. So I guess it depends what the electronics are, what I've chosen for the electronics, then what they bring. And, you know, they can be used to, to draw people's attention to some sort of information that I want to impart or, 
or to enhance something that I consider to be emotion, emotional so other people might not. But it can also be used to provide, I guess, grit or dirt or noise within the sound word of the harp, which is traditionally very sweet and melodic and people associate it with quite a, a beautiful sound. You know, often when I say to people I play the harp, the first thing they say is, oh, that's gorgeous, or I've always loved the harp. And they have a real sense in their head of what that is and what it means. And in some of the pieces, I, I do maybe try to experiment with ways that the harp can sound different to that view that people have of it. Um, but it's not my only reason for working with them. So, some of the electronics I use are to enhance that, to make it bigger. And some of them, just thinking about traditional music, one, one of the things about traditional music is that the dance music is, it has a very strong rhythmic identity. And I can use electronics to, to try and get me out of that. I was speaking to people about this a couple of weeks ago where as traditional musicians, we often have like this inner clock of the rhythm of the music. And given how many years we've spent playing that rhythm with others, keeping to the rhythm, departing from it always to come back, it's, it's always there. When you go to try and improvise with that background, sometimes it can be hard to get out of that pulse. And I find that surprise interjections from electronics is one way to interrupt that. Does the word music adequately cover what you do? Because amongst your instruments, instruments uh, is the conventional harp. Uh, you play the concertina, but you also play a harp with no strings. And you play the computer. So does the word music is that adequate to cover all what you do? I mean, it, I suppose it depends what the person using the word means by it, but and it depends what day I wake up on, you know, whether, whether sometimes I say music and sound. Uh, I was working that last Saturday and the producer just before the gig sent me a quote that I, I hadn't heard before. Um, I've studied the work of John Cage quite a bit, but I hadn't actually heard this anecdote. And apparently he was coming in at the back of a concert at a festival and someone's hailed him and said, here, come here, sit over here. The sound's better here. And apparently he, the story goes, he laughed and he said, imagine the idea of sound being better or worse, you know, that it, that it was that just different. So, um, yeah, I mean, music and sound, I, I guess I work in the space where, where you can hear or, or even feel, um, because sound is something that you can feel as well, even if you can't hear it. And... That is one of the things I like about the harp. It's also one of the things Mammy likes about the harp. Um, during lockdown, we've obviously had none or very few performances. And I did one or two online. And so you had family members maybe listening to you playing. And I thought this was one of the most interesting things that the, the, the piece went out online and I was talking to mommy afterwards because there was a time there during lockdown when you know you couldn't even visit anyone, you not even your mommy. And she said, I really enjoyed it, but I really missed the feel of you playing because she would be very used to sitting in a room drinking a cup of tea and I'd be playing the harp and she could feel it through the floorboards. So for her, she could see me playing, but what she missed was feeling the harp because the harp sits on the ground, comes up through your feet and it's one of the things I like about it.
and what's true for your mummy is also true of everybody else who has ever been in an audience. While watching things online uh, is great and it's the best thing that we have at the minute, there's nothing that compares to that relationship between someone on stage playing music uh, and an audience and the give and take uh, between the two. It's very hard to replicate that yeah and i think we're i mean we're finding lots of new things about what it means to engage online and we're finding i'm personally finding that a lot of a lot of what's coming out of these online performances i'm pleasantly surprised at the connection because i must be honest at the start i really was reluctant to engage with an online performance i i thought it was was never going to be anything close to connection and and also I thought it was kind of dangerous to be moving online there's a lot that I don't like about it but having done a few I've been surprised and I've had to revise my view of it um, but I, I do think that it doesn't capture everything and I'm a wee bit relieved about that <laughs> yeah. um, You've done lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of different uh, projects but did you always have a mind that you wanted to produce a solo album? It, it was something I've been thinking about for a long time. I went through a period of realising that I was always going to find it hard to put a solo album out because I'm fussy and every time I tried to play something I would find something wrong with it. It was only, it took me that long to put something out because it was only after I got a bit older where I realised that that was never going to get me anywhere really. <laughs> and I started to think of these sorts of recordings as, you know, a record of a time and it was okay not to like it later and it was okay to have things you would change about it. And I think working with improvised music really helps with that because you're able to see a recording of something that's improvised as as just a snapshot and not a definitive unchanged thing. So eventually I did I did do the solo album, but I think also it's I mean it's some that you, almost everyone does as a musician, you try to find out what you would do on your own. But also I haven't really been in a band, you know, I haven't, I didn't properly do that um, for for probably loads of reasons that, you know, there just wasn't, uh, there wasn't really the right opportunity or connection or I wasn't in the here long enough or, but I... I never was really in a band, so it was sort of the starting point for me anyway, and maybe it's related to the instrument too. There's a lot of solo playing goes on with harp, because it can provide its own accompaniment. So, yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'd love to talk about the Owen Bora at Belfast Circus on the, the store factory, but it would be here all day. <laughs> so maybe we could just talk about uh, one track from the solo album, which is simply called and uh, the piece is called uh, Anjarku, which you wrote for Emil O'Fuergan, who of course took part in one part when it was uh, performed at the uh, at Sark. Um, tell me how that came about, just that one uh, piece on four. Uh, I mean, I wanted to... One part was a really big piece I guess in my life and I, I wanted to make reference to it in this collection 
And also just because the album was released in 2018 and Eamon died in 2016. So it was very soon after that that I was starting to make this. So he is and, and has always been very much on my mind. So I wanted to put a piece for him in uh, in the, the album. I'd written pieces for him. We had intended to... Uh, perform well we, we had loads of ideas for projects and I you know I'm I'm cross that many of those projects are not that I was planning to make with Eamon are not possible now but um I had written him two pieces um one about his outlook on life hence and Jockey and that was um just a piece about Eamon really but the other piece that is in there the other melody uh was called An Ishog Olach and it was written when I was in Paris. I had wanted to find some texts that I could put to music for Eamon to sing. And Eamon and I used to play at an Afrin Gaelic, Illarawala. We used to play at the Irish language mass in town. And we were always on the hunt for different things that we could maybe bring to that newer music. So I found this text, which was, do you know, I actually don't have in my head where it was from, but it was very, very old. And it was part of a sacred collection of texts. Um, and so I took the words for that and, and wrote a melody to it. And the plan was that he would sing it. Because I think he was also planning to release um, an album of sacred music soon after that. And so I took those two melodies that I'd written for him and I put them in on top of the soundscape to Owen Vara, which he was a massive part of. And I... Owen Vara was 90 minutes long, but I just selected a section from it. So I think it's about seven minutes long on the album. And it's just a section of that big f soundscape of field recordings that made up a part of that performance. And then I put his melodies on top. So I thought it was a nice way of kind of remembering what his contribution to Owen Vara had been, but also his pieces, um, because I think they would have been the first of a few that we were going to write and play together. No, uh, no, I'll never forget uh, Owen Vara. Maybe because I'm from the area that was uh, that Kieran Carson was writing about. But um, and then I remember leaving it, and w when I left uh, Sark, I could hear everything going on around me. I could hear cars, I could hear birds singing, I could hear people chatting. It sort of made you feel more alive actually and aware of what's actually going on around you just an astonishing uh, piece of music it um i think i think sound in the world <clears throat> does often take a back seat and i think with a lot of how technology is developing you know that we can now have video calls and we now you know the selfie and photographs and of course the visual always has always taken precedence over the sound for, for us. And so in life, it's always something that kind of takes a backseat. <laughs> and I think whenever we're asked to listen to what's going on all the time, um, it really does kind of wake you up. But I also think that, you know, it's there's a lot of music used as background music and it's sometimes very hard to go anywhere where music's not being piped at you at a low level. And I, I really think it was done, I wish it was done less. I think it's really hard when you're sitting somewhere, you know, in a restaurant yeah. or in a hairdresser's or in a hotel lobby or in a lift. Sometimes it would be maybe better for all music if 
if there was less of it just played when you didn't want it necessarily. <laughs> okay. What are you up to at the minute? I know you're doing lots and lots of things. And you do things all over the world. I know if you have a favourite uh, project that you've worked on anywhere in the world. But um, uh, this is, uh, we're recording this in September 2020. What's on your plate at the minute? Yeah, um, I just came back from Dublin uh, on Sunday. So I was working there for a week on Jennifer Walsh's new piece, which is called Ireland, a data set. And that was a, a brilliant project. Um, it was a composition, kind of different flavours of Ireland, really, and with a dollop of artificial intelligence. So it really asked what kind of, well, how you define Irishness depends, depends on what you train the computer on. So if you have a data set that is about Ireland and you train a computer on it and then the computer outputs what it thinks of Ireland based on what you've trained it on. So you, there's some really interesting results there and Jennifer Walsh's work is always fascinating. It was performed by Tonto which is a vocal ensemble and Nick Roth who's a saxophonist and uh, Aideen Cosgrove was the designer. So that was amazing. Um, it's a great new piece, really thought-provoking. Lots of different ways that we can be asked to think about Ireland and Irishness and uh, it was performed in the National Concert Hall, but but we weren't allowed an audience, so um, it was a live stream. And so the performers performed to a pretty much empty hall with seven or eight cameras, and they that was all streamed, the video was all streamed, and I mixed it then separately in a room outside, which was a weird experience because I'm very much focused on live sound engineering, and to be doing that separately from the performers was, was odd and, and presented a lot of new challenges so it was it was really interesting to be involved in that um last week loved it um at the minute um i'm actually working on uh editing a, a new collection of academic writing on women and traditional music so that's um came out of the conference that happened in in galway in february 2019 so we're just working on the peer review and the publication of those papers um with sheila denver verena cummins and Maeve Neurhan. so that publication will come out next year um, and then I'm writing. I mean, it's been great in a way in lockdown to be in one place. One of the things I had to do was I have my performance computer has software on it that I use and use for pieces. And if you've got concerts coming up, you're, you're really reluctant to kind of do an overhaul of that machine in case it gets mangled, because then how are you going to do your concerts? So I think having all the concerts cleared out of the diary was an opportunity to to overhaul my performance machine. I mean, I'm on, if I'm honest, it didn't go very well. <laughs> very few of my pieces now work. Uh, so I have to do a lot of updates and a lot of workarounds with the software just to, to make all of those work again. Um, developing new software where the other ones don't. Um, but it's, in, it's interesting, you know, it, it does say a bit about that working with that type of music because in updating the computer, which was a, a necessary thing to do, uh, every as, as often as possible, but every few years, you know, I've, I've mangled the patches. They're all kind of unhappy with the new operating system and with their updates. And I do wonder, you know, do I start and try and make them all work again, or do I just leave them in the past on the old computer system and do we start again? And those are kind of interesting things to consider. So yeah, doing an overhaul of my software, writing new stuff, um, 
working on several new pieces over lockdown. I just did, uh, I put music to Maureen Boyle, who's a poet, her poem Straban. Um, so that was a lovely project to do. Um, and doing a lot of practice, really. So keeping busy. You, you can also work with other artists across Zoom, which is good. Um, developing new projects and also working with people who want to work with electronics. So I've been doing a wee bit of teaching that way as well. Okay. Well, final, qu- final question, and I can't let you go without talking about uh, fair play, which I think uh, you referred to uh, earlier. Uh, as one of the founding members, and of course, Fair Play is a group which aims to address the gender imbalance in traditional music, where beyond musicians and groups have dominate, dominated the scene for such a long time. Um, what has Fair Play achieved up to now, and how much more work is there to do? Um, I think one of the things we've achieved is that, well, you know about it, and the people know about it, and that the conversation is something that is considered necessary now, and that was really the first thing we wanted to achieve, the fact that there was a sense that this was an issue and that we needed to talk about it. So that has definitely been happening. Um, A group from Fair Play met with the Minister for Arts in the South um, last week. And so we're hopeful that, I mean, some of of the the things that we, we need to see happen will happen, and at the very least the conversation is happening around it. Um, there's also work going on in Scotland with the Bit Collective, and I think in music more generally, um, there's the Key Change Movement and Musicians Union have been speaking about this as well. So it's just great, and it's great that uh, lots of young people are getting involved, and that there's a space there for people if they want to talk about these issues. That there there are people who are willing to connect with them, um, and I'm always interested, you know, in in supporting women or people who are underrepresented in music in in being able to work really. Mm-hmm. Uh, the piece I was working on last week, we noticed again that, you know, f- from the technical side of things and from the engineering side of things, I was the only one in a team of about 10. So there's still a long way to go, but um, yeah, it's going great. And we're really happy with all of the support. Okay. Okay, I apologise. This is the hardest question I'm going to ask you, and it's the the final question I've asked uh, everyone that's in the podcast. Morning, if you were to choose a piece of your own music that best represents what uh, you have done over your career, what would it be? Oh, there was one that came to mind first, and then closely followed by another. So I think it depends what you're looking for, but I think it, I think maybe the Chinwag because it's the one, it, it is a piece that involves harp, but also voices um, of people having a conversation. And I made recordings of that, those voices and then used the computer to call forth snippets of them as I was playing harp. And I think, for me, it represents lots of the lovely things about traditional music made possible by technology. So it, it brings up in words things about history, about turn of phrase, about language, about connections, about friendship, and I guess about sense of place and community. And you can imagine those things while you're listening to a jig, but the computer made it possible to actually bring forth those those snippets in words while I was playing. So it's, it's one of my favourite pieces, and I guess 
a lot of the power in it comes from the conversation of the women who, who made it. So I think the chin wag. Okay. Uh, many thanks for that, Una. It's been an absolute pleasure yet again uh, speaking to you. Lots of things that people don't know or are afraid of or it's a bit like modern art. You know, people are afraid to touch it because they think they don't understand it. But when it's explained to them and people get uh, the point of view of the creator, whether it's the artist or the musician or the writer or whatever, uh, things become more clear and hopefully that's what the podcast will do. See, I've never really got that about modern art because it's almost a comfort. If it's happening now, today, in real time, then we now are best placed to make it, to understand it, to engage with it. I mean, because, because your response matters most to the piece that's made now in the moment, it's, it's almost easier than knowing about the history of art. There's a lot to learn there, and, it, and you've actually to learn it because it's not about what you're experiencing now necessarily. Um, so I think, I think modern art is, because your response is what matters, it's almost the easiest thing the easiest response to have. <laughs> <laughs> okay, as I say, many thanks again uh, for that. You know, I hope you've enjoyed this uh, week's uh, edition of our Cudum show. Let's make sure of our McMillan. For a million, 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 a million, 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 million,
Well, that's all for today, folks. So until the next time, from me, Robert McMillan, and the Erchulen Choil podcast from Madrid, Slanagas Banacht. <laughs>